Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Welcome to Podcast One. We hope you'll support our sponsors who bring you these podcasts absolutely free and with limited interruptions. And of course, we appreciate you listening to this show, which will get started in just a second. You know, there's a popular children's book called Captain Underpants. Uh, all of us yes. here at Kirkus Reviews know it quite well. He may be a fictional character, but you can feel just as strong and confident as the captain by becoming acquainted with me undies. As the good captain. Oh, me undies are made with a material sustainably sourced from beechwood trees. Their naturally soft fiber makes a fabric that won't sag down or ride up. With me undies, you can get undies sent right to your door. No more hunting around for the perfect pair at a crowd store. MeUndies is so sure you'll love your first pair that if you're not happy, they'll do whatever they can to get you into the right pair. And if they can't, keep them and they'll refund you. So it really is risk-free to try the best underwear ever. For listeners of Fully Booked, you get 15% off your first pair of MeUndies and free shipping. That's right. Just go to MeUndies.com slash Kirkus for your 15% off your first pair, free shipping, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. In fact, since we are overflowing with generosity, here's an extra gift for you. Order a pair, take a screenshot of your transaction, send it to us, and Podcast One will send you another pair of me undies. You get one for 15% off, and then you get another pair completely free. The first 25 people to send a proof of purchase, which is a screenshot of your purchase or of the receipt, will send you another pair free. Just send your proof to gift at podcastone.com. Put Kirkus in the subject line, and you will soon have another pair in your collection. Again, that's gift at podcastone.com. One more time, meundies.com slash Kirkus. Check it out. Podcast One presents Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews, the ultimate insider's scoop on the best new books. Every week, Kirkus brings you author interviews, recommendations from the bestseller lists, and insights into books that are not yet on your radar. Hi, I'm Clay Smith. I'm the editor of Kirkus Reviews. And I'm Megan Labrie, staff writer. And today's guest is Michael Scott Moore, um, author of The Desert and the Sea, 977 Days Captive on the Somali Pirate Coast. And it's quite a story. He, Michael is a, um American and German um, journalist who had gone to Somalia to investigate um, and to find out more about why... Um, some men there become pirates in the first place. As Megan indicated in the subtitle of this book, he ended up being held by them for almost three years. And every review that has come out about this book so far has talked about how thrilling it is. Um, and it, I, he does keep you really engaged. Uh, he does a great job with that. It's kind of a nonfiction thriller, but really nice sort of meditations in this book about why, you know, why the pirates would even become pirates. You know, a very humane book. He, he doesn't really castigate them all the time he's he's it's a very humane book i would say i would agree with that it seems that um you know he's processed a lot of his experience and um i would call it a generous book in a lot of ways well he is in germany let's call him up and see what he has to say So I, I want to uh, set the scene uh, of this book a little bit more than than we would maybe in another interview because I, I think 
there are many people in the world who um, have not been kidnapped by Somalian pirates and, and a lot of people also who don't really understand sort of the political and geographic dynamics happening over there. So just to kind of set the scene here, I mean, tell us a little bit, why, why were you in Somalia in the first place? Well, I, I went to research a book and I became interested in, in pirates while I was living in Germany and uh, following a trial in Hamburg for Spiegel Online. Uh, there was a fairly historic trial of 10 pirates in, um, in, in Hamburg after they tried to hijack a, a German cargo ship. And what fascinated me while I watched the trial and also while I you know, reported on some of the stories from the newsroom in Berlin about these ships getting hijacked was that it was the first outbreak, first very serious outbreak of piracy in um, in the world since the Barbary Coast era. Um, and so it, it seemed to me that some, some part of the international order was breaking down. And uh, I was curious about about the reasons. And of course, while I sat in the courtroom with these 10 guys from Somalia, and they're 20 lawyers, by the way, um, mm. it became interesting to me why, um, you know, what what brought them to... Um, I started to be curious about why they would bother to become pirates in the first place. And of course, the answer is poverty, but there, there are some other answers that go even deeper than that. And one of them is illegal fishing. And it was actually through connections at that trial that you were introduced to connections in Somalia that um, drew you through this journey, correct? That's right. Yeah. So I uh, I was curious about piracy to be, to begin with, but it was through the trial that I found connections in, in Somalia that made it possible to go there. There were Somali elders in Europe who had led journalists there before, and I knew another journalist, a German TV reporter, who um, uh, who was also interested in doing his own project down there. So the Ashwin, that's Ashwin Rahman, and he became my partner. Yeah, I, uh, we went down there together. I mean, how were you actually kidnapped by the pirates? Well, it was when Ashwin uh, decided to go to the airport and fly off to Mogadishu a couple of days early that um, we made an extra trip to the, along the airport road. And when we saw him off that afternoon, he, he flew away safely. Um, on the way back, there was actually a truck full of guys with guns who were waiting for our car. Um, and when they saw me, they came off the truck and pulled me out of the car and beat me with their weapons, uh, broke my wrist and bloodied my, my scalp and um, bundled me into an, another car. And, and that was it. I was a hostage. That was just one of many moments of upsetting my expectations as a reader for someone to be taken by pirates on land. And there's a rather foreboding quote that's in the lead up to that scene, something along the lines of, you know, you know, I think speaking with, you know, a pirate, you know, saying like, have you, you know, have you ever kidnapped anyone on land? No, you know, I, I don't mm -hmm. do that. Or I could do that right now, but I'm not going to. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> he, he was very clear about that, that, that actually the, the gangs have so much power in certain parts of Somalia that they could do that at yeah. will. Um, and yeah, they, they actually did. Um, Ashwin feels lucky that they didn't um, catch us on the way out because the belief, the general belief now is that they were waiting all day for us and all morning. So, uh, it's just luck that he didn't get captured on the way to the airport, that we took a different route to the airport. And afterwards they asked me about him. They were, they were asking where the second, the second journalist was. Hmm. So the subtitle to this book is 977 days captive 
on the Somali pirate coast. So when did you start to realize that you were going to be held captive longer than you had maybe first thought you would be? I think that realization came in cycles. I, uh, at first, I obviously hoped it would only be a, a few weeks or a few months. And although I knew that Western hostages had been held for about a year and a half, you hope against hope. And then after three months, the pirates at, who had captured me on land and moved me around among bush camps and pirate uh, prison houses on land, put me on a ship that was an anchor just off Hobio. So I think they were afraid of aerial surveillance that was sort of flying overhead all the time. And um, maybe for protection or maybe to save money, they actually put me and one other hostage on board a ship that had been anchored off Hobio for I don't know, a couple of weeks before we got there. So in other words, the same pirate gang had hijacked a ship on the open sea, brought it to Hobio. We actually saw it there from one of the houses we were held in. Um, and a couple of weeks later, we were on board. That was one moment where I realized that I, it wasn't going to be a quick case. Um, they were obviously trying to, trying to hold me and trying to keep me away from U.S. military. So... Once I was on the ship, I thought, well, I'm probably going to be here for a long time. Uh, and obviously, there were other moments, too. I think a after the first year, I, I thought there's something really hopeless about these negotiations going on. And, uh, you know, you go through cycles of, of hope and despair. Because the price kept – the ransom for you kept changing. I mean, it started at, I think, $20 million, Is that right? $20 million was the first mm -hmm. demand, yeah. And they stuck to that for a very long time. Mm -hmm. But then your mother – got involved and at one point there was one million and they changed that to something like four and a half million and yeah there there was a period right in the in the middle of negotiations where the, it sounded like they were going to come down um to 1.5 million and we, which was a drastic reduction from what they had been demanding um I think the the negotiations had brought it down to something like five million, and then all of a sudden it seemed to drop, and then a little while later it went back up. <laughs> and the strange thing is that although I I got very bad, I never never got accurate news about what was going on from the pirates, but that particular blip in the negotiations, that weird dip and and spring back, um, was something I heard about too. So in other words, one of the pirates who gave me news uh, was accurate about that. And you mentioned in the book that you had no kidnapping insurance, which was news to me that that was such a thing. That it even existed, yeah. Correct. Um, I, I tried to get it, and at the end, uh, I didn't. And um, I had a claim rejected, and I should have called off the trip right then. Um, I didn't, and, and that weighed on me the whole time. It still weighs on me, as a matter of fact. Um, but that's not unusual. These things, those policies exist and they don't always, journalists can't always get covered by them, especially independent journalists. You know, during this whole ordeal, I mean, th there were actually people in the American and German governments who were trying to help you at various points, but it seems maybe like they were more interested in, you know, bombing um, the pirates um, than paying the ransom. I mean, where where do you think government officials went, went wrong in your case? Actually, I don't think that was a, a wrong posture. Mm -hmm. um, the because first of all there were negotiations going on you know whether I knew about it or not but uh, my mother was negotiating and she had support actually from the U.S. government um, mm -hmm. the FBI helps with that kind of thing 
Yes, the FBI is actually quite good with hostage negotiation because it has its roots in the mafia and kidnappings were a problem, you know, domestically before uh, the FBI became sort of an international organization. But I think the, the military posture that, that the Pentagon took was pressure. I mean, I don't know what else they were thinking. Uh, it's possible there were plans to come get me too, but I think the pressure that they put on the pirates, at least towards the end, was actually quite helpful. It was a two-pronged approach, and I don't hold them, hold that against them. Uh, in fact, I made it clear that I was willing to you know, suffer the risk of a rescue if everyone got totally frustrated with with negotiations. Like I said, after a year, I was clear that things weren't moving very fast. And I thought, just never mind, come get me. And if I die, I die. <laughs> I mean, that's how desperate I was after a year or so. Speaking of postures, it seems to me that, you know, throughout this generally, most times as a hostage, you seem to be practicing passive resistance. Mm-hmm. with the Somalis. Why was that the decision you made as opposed to, you know, the full-on Rambo-American fantasy of, you know, mm-hmm. picking up a Kurlishnikov and, you know, laying waste to your captors? Right. Well, that was that was the temptation. But that sort of passive resistance is, is a much more productive and... Um, it's, it's actually the way to go. I mean, okay. when, when, when you're a hostage, that's probably the best posture to take most mm-hmm. of the time. If I could have found a way to, to escape or, and I thought about it and planned it and, you know, went about that sort of thinking almost all the time, if I could have found a way to get out, including with violence, I would have done it. Um, but sometimes my emotions overwhelmed me and I was so angry at the pirates. I just the guards who were holding me, um, that I very seriously considered just picking up a gun and doing it for the sake of how I felt, you know, mm-hmm. and that would have been suicide. There was, there's no way I would have been able to kill all the guards who were around me because there was always a minimum of seven, sometimes up to 15 in a given prison house. So it would have been cathartic, you know, would have been satisfying for about two seconds or something. Um, and it would have been, it would, it would have meant destruction for everybody. And I'm now I'm very glad I did it. I did not do that, but that's something that I considered almost all the time for periods of my captivity. The interesting thing is that I I just talked to the pilot who flew me out, um, who was a former British Special Forces guy, mm-hmm. and he said that the the fact that I was not trained like him. Uh, probably saved my life because for someone like him who had the training and would think about how to do that and then go do it, it also would have been suicide. He said, you know, so many things can go wrong when you, when you do that. And I was simply outnumbered. So, um, he said, yeah, pretty much the fact that you didn't do that is what what saved your life. (laughs) You suffered through nearly three years of captivity and, uh, that was obviously quite painful, but you've written a book that goes into great detail about that experience. I mean, was it always the idea that you would write this book or did it ever feel too difficult to you to to relive the experience? No, I don't think reliving the experience was the problem. But, Mm -hmm. you know, halfway through my captivity, although I knew I was going to write some sort of book, um, I stopped hoping that I was going to get out at all and managed to do that. So it's it's not as if I had my mind on a book the whole time I was I was there. Uh, when I when I got out, it was helpful to write it. I think because one one aspect of therapy involves put it putting a whole lot of disparate and and painful memories into some kind of narrative story, giving them some sort of narrative logic. That's that's what I did. Yeah. <laughs> um, the the book helped that way. Yeah, but I mean, there's something so 
you know, it's so interesting to me because the reviews, it seems like all the reviews that have come out about this book so far talk about how thrilling it is. I mean, and you definitely keep readers engaged. Um, mm-hmm. But there is something so patient and even um, at certain points just kind of declarative about the style of your writing, like you're kind of reporting on your own life. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it makes the reader feel like you've come to a place of understanding and acceptance about what happened to you. Well, I hope so. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It it certainly wasn't wasn't the case when I started. That tone, if if it's there, took some work. I think I was urged to be more emotional, you know, while I was writing it by the people around me, agents, editors. And I was interested, at least at first, in just telling it fairly straight. It was difficult to get into certain emotions, you know. That took some time. Um, So I I had to write it in sort of a layered way, um, which means get the facts down first, get the story down first, and add some more dimension as my mind healed. Um, so I became more capable to f- of facing some of the horrible stuff that I was actually writing about as the writing progressed. But I think that declarative style um, was simply the way into the story in the first place. That's what I started with. If it helps it, you know, if that makes it seem like I've come to some sort of terms about it, I think that's true. But that was also an approach. Hmm. It's a deliberate deliberate approach. I think it's gorgeously written, compelling literary (laughs) journalism. That was the thrilling part for me. (laughs) That's fantastic. (laughs) So um, more than most books I've had the pleasure of reading recently, I realized that the epigraph of your book really guided my reading. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you you have a copy of your book in front of you? I was wondering if you would read the epigraph for us. Yeah, the epigraph is from Richard Kapuscinski. And he wrote um, about Algeria in the 1960s. And he noticed two styles of Islam, two two kinds of Islam uh, that were interesting to him. So the epigraph reads, in Algiers, one speaks simply of the existence of two varieties of Islam, one which is called the Islam of the desert, and a second which is defined as the Islam of the river or of the sea. The first is the religion practiced by warlike, nomadic tribes struggling to survive in one of the world's most hostile environments, the Sahara. The second Islam is the faith of merchants, itinerant peddlers, people of the road and of the bazaar for whom Openness, compromise, and exchange are not only beneficial to trade, but necessary to life itself. And that's from Travels with Herodotus. Now, your guards were actually devout Sufi Muslims, is that correct? They were, yeah. Somewhat to my surprise, yeah. Yeah, why was that surprising? Uh, Because although I knew that that most of Somalia was Sufi, I assumed, like a lot of people, most pirates had no time to be religious and, you know, wouldn't even bother to fool themselves that they were being religious since they had taken to a life of crime. And it it turns out that's true for the bosses, uh, but not for the lower ranking guys. You mentioned in the book, you know, likening it to, you know, we're not surprised when mafia dons go to, you know, church service every Sunday. Right. Of course, they're, you know, the ones filling up the collection plates. Exactly. It's not yeah. exactly unheard of in other uh, traditions, um, but it still, it still angered me. I mean, while I was there um, to be prayed next to by someone who seriously thought that his, his God was going to take him seriously uh, was outrageous to me. Talking more about the guards, I mean, you, you referenced this a little bit earlier, but you know, the traditional view is that, is that because it's so difficult for men to make a livable wage in, in Somalia, they become pirates and hope for a huge payday. You also mentioned um, illegal fishing. I mean, what talk to us about why someone would even want to become a pirate. 
Right. So that's that's another dimension of the title. So we just talked about the religious dimension, and I, I go into those those two opposites, um, the sort of conservative and and more open brands of Islam. Um, so that that's one layer of, of the title, the desert and the sea. But the, another layer is this question of whether pirates are just frustrated fishermen, and it's a really interesting question because the roots of Somali piracy actually do lie in illegal fishing and the fact that since um, uh, Somalia fell into chaos uh, after 1991, it hasn't been able to defend its own coastline. So starting in the 90s, illegal fishing ships really did come in uh, sometimes to within 12 miles of the Somali coastline and stole the fish. It just took fish from people who were hungry. You know? And that's, that's an outright crime. And it absolutely hap- happens in other places up and down uh, the African coast on both east and west west coasts and slowly i think the some regions in uh, somalia especially puntland started to send out little boats um to defend themselves against that and to demand a s- sort of license fee from the ships that were coming in too close um within 200 miles you know you can based on international conventions you can do that you can justify that and they would hold a fishing ship from who knows 24 48 hours for about 50,000 bucks and say here you are. Once the owners pay up, here's your license, and you can continue to fish. You know, it was um, technically criminal, but it was actually a way of ordering things on the coastline. And so that was just how how business got done in the '90s off Somalia. If um, it, you know, if a fishing ship wanted to come in, there was no organized central national government to deal with. So it was sort of ad hoc. But those groups that sent out the the gunmen um, started to get ambitious, and they became very organized. And they started to steal, hijack larger, larger ships, and steal enormous amounts of money through extortion. So it became less about fishing as soon as the world heard about it. By the time I got there, most pirates were no longer fishermen. I mean, most of the people I talked to uh, seemed to either have no fishing background um, or or simply be soldiers. They were clan soldiers. And that's a dichotomy right there between the sort of inland desert nomad strain of Somali society and the coastal coastal clans that actually do rely on fishing. Um, and most of my guards came from the desert. They were gunmen. And that's what a pirate basically has to has to be. Only a small percentage of, of pirates actually need to run an outboard motor. <laughs> <laughs> Or, or know what they're doing on the ocean. The point is that uh, although illegal fishing is an important thing to keep your mind on when you think about Somali piracy, um, it's also important not to be fooled into, into thinking that the pirates are there only because they're disgruntled fishermen. They are there because they're poor. Uh, they're also there, however, because uh, most of them are addicted to cut, which is a very expensive drug habit in Somalia. I recently uh, finished interviewing an author who wrote on the opioid crisis here, and that pinged my memory of, you know, people who, you know, become slaves to their addiction and then therefore, you know, perform these acts they might not otherwise. Right. Yeah, it it was interesting. I I don't think I saw a single pirate in in Somalia who was not addicted to cunt, and the guards actually had to just to satisfy their addictions, actually had to sit there all afternoon in front of a big pile of this leaf and chew the stems um, for hours before they could get as high as they needed to. And then they would sleep all night, and in the morning they would wake up depressed. 
I saw the cycle. Uh, I also did try cot. They offered me stems here and there, and I would try maybe three or four stems, and I felt better. You know, for mm-hmm. an hour or two, I would feel good. Um, but I was pretty careful not to not to keep doing that and not to get addicted because I saw how brutal it could be. I didn't really expect this at all, but you do write in the book about pirates of the 17th and 18th centuries. Yeah. With all those sort of mistaken but romantic notions that we have about them. Yeah. Um, and of course, you write about present day Somali pirates. But I, are, I mean, are there any similarities between those two groups? Actually, there were a lot of similarities. One thing that drew me to the to the whole topic of modern piracy was the fact that we had a mistaken idea of, of antique piracy. What everyone said about pirates, uh, Somali pirates, when it was a headline problem, was that, oh, these guys are mean. There's nothing romantic about this. This is just, you know, uh, greed and cruelty. Well, it was, it was just greed and cruelty in the 1700s, too. <laughs> you know, just because just because pirates dressed, you know, like, like degraded French noblemen or something like that doesn't mean that it was a romantic <laughs> Right. <laughs> so they were they were cruel. They were they were mean, and they and it was a form of organized crime. Um, and they they did that on the ocean because they could. There was there was it was lawless. And actually, the world has been like like that for most of its history. And the interesting difference is that when there was a rash of there were actually centuries of Barbary piracy off the North African coast. Um, it took a young mercantile nation called the United States to get really frustrated with that and squelch it. So there actually was a very long period of actually Islamic piracy off the the North African coast, which is different from the Horn of Africa, but not too far away. And it did have a dimension of jihad. Um, It was also part of a a religious war between Europe and um, the Ottoman Empire which is what North Africa belonged to back then. Um, and it was squelched by you know, by the new United States Navy, which decided it didn't want to keep paying money to these pirates just to f- sail its merchant ships over to Europe. And that was an, an, also an interesting new posture for the United States because 70 years earlier, as a bunch of rebellious colonies, um, those colonies actually sponsored some very brutal pirate adventures, not just off the coast of the the American colonies, but also out uh, off the Horn of Africa. (laughs) So in other words, 300 years ago, there were some very violent um, pirates who were sent from New York and Rhode Island um, sacking Muslim ships in the Gulf of Aden. That's sort of a forgotten period of of piracy that I thought was interesting to to bring up too. And that would have been the focus of my book if I'd not been kidnapped. (laughs) Now, uh, you know, that's where I was coming from. I was hoping to place Somali piracy into some sort of historical context. So I'd already done a lot of that, that homework. Um, now it's, you know, I, I get into that history a little bit in the book, but it's not a focus. Those brief spurts of laughter during the last response reminded me to mention, um, I had a, the chance to catch your TEDx talk from 2016 oh. that's online. Mm-hmm. What being kidnapped by pirates in Somalia taught me about having a sense of humor. Yeah. I, I mean, that was very unexpected. Would you <laughs> tell our listeners a little bit, bit about the premise of that? Yeah, uh, well, yeah, so there was no, you can tell that Somali pirates, they're, they're so lawless that, you know, sometimes it's just funny. And, yeah. <laughs> um, so there, there, was, there were moments of humor. Um, I didn't laugh very often in Somalia, but um, while I wrote the book, I could certainly, um, you know, bring some gallows humor to the story. And 
I, I can't call it a strategy of survival, but but one thing that helped me survive was th- this occasional capacity to take myself out of the situation, mm-hmm. stand aside from it, and and find it funny or find something funny. And the TED Talk is about a story I heard on the radio when I had a radio in Somalia, which I didn't always, um, about a giant rubber ducky. <laughs> <laughs> in a harbor in Taiwan um, that exploded. It was, it was there for some <laughs> a New Year's celebration. And the BBC actually reported that it got attacked by eagles and blew up in their faces. And that's struck. <laughs> actually, I still find it really funny. Um, and that, that spurred this meditation in, in, the, in the talk about how humor is actually uh, may in some sense have a religious dimension in the sense that it, in in order to have a capacity for it at all, you have to be able to stand outside your sense of grievance um, and, you know, what may be very serious suffering, whether it's back pain or, um, um, or captivity. And that small bit of transcendence is really important for survival. The um, decimated rubber ducky, the large rubber ducky, you show <laughs> photographs of that, and then it actually cuts to the audience on the video I saw, and they, their laughs, to me, made me laugh all over again because they were so, you could tell, concerned for you, you know, that, this, that this thing had happened to you, and it was such a relief to them to have this duck. So... <laughs> Yeah, that was important. I unfortunately I didn't find a way to work the rubber ducky into the book, because um, <laughs> it happened at a, at a time where the, the story of the you know the narrative I was trying to maintain just was going in a completely different direction. Yeah. So I'm glad I got to talk about it in a separate sort of venue because um, it wound up on the cutting room floor in my book. Well, the book is The Desert and the Sea, 977 Days Captive on the Somali Pirate Coast. It's full of laughs. Just kidding. But it's a great book, Michael. We really enjoyed reading it. A lot of unexpected stuff there. So thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. The ultimate insider scoop on the latest books, right here on Fully Booked. If you liked Fully Booked, don't miss Beyond the Darkness here on Podcast One. It's a weekly look at all things paranormal with world-renowned researchers and experiencers. They challenge everything we think we know about ghosts, ghouls, angels, demons, aliens, monsters, and more. So check out Beyond the Darkness weekly on Podcast One, podcastone.com, and Apple Podcast. Also remember to rate and review. Let's be honest here. Most of us are brushing our teeth wrong, not for long enough, and forgetting to change our brushes on time. But not me, because I've got Quip. Most brands focus on selling flashy gimmicks rather than better brushing, but not Quip. So what makes Quip so different, Clay? Well, Megan, for starters, Quip is an electric toothbrush that's a fraction of the cost of bulkier brushes. And Quip's built-in timer helps you clean for the dentist-recommended two minutes with guiding pulses that remind you when to switch sides, which is 
good for someone like me who in the morning is, uh, let's just say not all the pistons are firing, if you know what I mean. Right? Love those guiding pulses. With Quip's subscription plans, Clay, they focus on your health. They deliver new brush heads on a dentist-recommended schedule. That's every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. And check this out. Quip also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror and unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel wherever you take your teeth. Yeah, for both of us is pretty much everywhere. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Finally, everyone loves Quip. Uh, it's been featured by Oprah, Time Magazine, and it has the distinction of being the first subscription electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association. Quip starts at just $25, and for all you fully booked listeners, if you go to getquip.com slash right now, You'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. Again, that's your first refill pack free at getquip.com slash Kirkus. G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash Kirkus. Do it for your teeth. This is Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. Thanks for joining us. So, Clay, you mentioned um, that you found this to be an unexpected reading experience. Um, What was one of the things that surprised you? Well, I mean, one of the things I mentioned was, you know, that I did not expect to be reading about, you know, 17th century pirates in a book about Somali yeah. pirates because they seem so different. But, you know, he he really wrestles with um, the legacy of his father who, you know, had had a hard time. His father was alcoholic and Michael, the, the author, had been told that his father um, died of a heart attack. He found out later that that wasn't accurate. Uh, and so th- there's all these little mysteries and mm-hmm. sort of subplots, I would say, in this book that, you know, in addition to the main narrative about what it was like being kidnapped, really are just so engaging. I was fascinated to hear about growing up in a Lockheed family at mm-hmm. that time, that his father was an engineer and was working in Germany, where his mother, who is German, um, was working as well. And then they came back to California together. And there are many such couples in their community. So he has dual citizenship. I don't know that we mentioned in the interview um, with Germany and the United States and was actually traveling on a German passport when he went to Somalia because he thought it would raise fewer flags, you know, as yeah. far as safe passage went. Yeah, just just a whole bundle of tragedies that sort of had to happen for, for him to be kidnapped for almost three years. But it's just a great find, you know, like I, I strangely, it may not sound like a summer read um, given its um, grimness, but... It really keeps you engaged. It's, it's actually a really wonderful summer read. I agree. So now is the obnoxious time of the podcast when um, I explain that um, all the books that Megan and I get, we, we rarely ever have to pay for a book. Um, right. Which is why it was so intriguing to me. Um, do you see this, this recent investigation that the New York Times did um, into this curious case on Amazon of the used paperback. Free shipping, Clay. Free shipping. With with free shipping. (laughs) Yeah. Or actually, there was another version for 99 cents for this book, which is a a romance (laughs) novel, but you had to pay $5.94 in shipping. So which which do you choose? It's a tough call, you know? This was a 2009 novel called One Snowy Night with a K um, by Deborah McGilvilray. Mm-hmm. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. She's a romance author. And I think that she was particularly horrified by uh, this listing of her work. 
Yeah, she was. She she put on Twitter, um, you can um, buy uh, a copy of One Snowy Night for $1,558.59 plus the $5.49 shipping or $2,630.52 in free shipping. And then she said, hang in there. It's being reprinted in July for much less. <laughs> so, <laughs> I just thought that was a great response to <laughs> the oddity of this um but i mean it's a nice thing that david streitfield who wrote this article you know sort of um exposes which i mean which is that pricing on amazon uh, at least as far as books are concerned can be a little bit like the wild west you know yeah and while there is not yet anything illegal about this, obviously, gigantically predatory practice of, you know, upselling these books, um, you know, it's it doesn't feel good. No, it's certainly it doesn't feel good. And, and we should say that Amazon says in this article that uh, they are trying to crack down on this. But there's a really interesting quote from um, a publicist uh, for Kensington, which, which is a house that does publish a lot of romance, uh, just for how very um, blunt it is. Mo- most um, statements from PR people aren't this blunt, but it's her name is Vita Ingstrand, and she's the director of communications for Kensington. Uh, and she says, quote, Amazon is driving us insane with its willingness to allow third party vendors to sell author authors books with zero oversight. It's maddening and just plain wrong. Um, yeah. So, it, it, you know, it, it is very frustrating for people in the industry and for readers. Be careful out there. Please don't buy $2,000, $630 books. Right. Um, also, I really like Vita, by the way. I did an interview with Sonali Dev, who is one of their mm-hmm. romance authors, who I loved her book. And um, with my book, I got a pair of socks that have all of their seasons romance covers on them. So you got some swag. With your... I, got, I got some sock swag yeah. with romance novels on them. I was over the moon. Yeah. Book publicist as, a, as opposed to um, journalist who might cover, um, let's say luxury travel we don't get that much swag so um (laughs) it's notable when when we do of course i mean we don't go into it for swag we go into it for the free books and to interview writers and uh all that great stuff to uphold journalistic ethics as well clay but i mean socks socks yeah well our editors have a lot of journalistic ethics and they've been thinking about uh which books are the best this week so let's call them up and see what they have to say right we've got our editors on the line they're here to talk to us about the books this week they think we all ought to be reading we've got vicky smith our children's book editor laura simeon is our ya book editor Uh, eric libetrow is our nonfiction editor and laurie muchnick is our fiction editor so vicky what are we liking in children's books this week we are liking the young readers edition of proud by ibtahaj muhammad Mm -hmm. and for people who are not familiar with her she is an olympic fencer um, she's the first American who competed wearing hijab, and she's the first Muslim American woman ever to win a medal, an Olympic medal. And so, you know, that all by itself is enough to uh, to make a book. But it's a really neat 
insider look at what it's like to be Muslim in America. Um, she is completely, you know, she's like every other kid. Um, she plays Barbies. She wants to go to birthday parties. Um, she, you know, and sleepovers and so forth. But because she is talking about her life from the inside, it really helps to sort of flip the script for a lot of the assumptions that non-Muslims, especially non-Hijabis, have about what it's like. And, and there's this great moment early in the book where her friends, you know, they're all athletes. She's she's really um, encouraged hard by her parents to become an athlete and to compete in sports. And one of the reasons that she chooses fencing is that she can do it while she's covered. But her friends are saying, they're talking about trying out and you know, what they're wearing. And, and her she, her two friends are wearing, you know, shorts and, and tank tops. And, and one of them says, I could never be a Muslim because I'm always hot. Plus, I look too cute in tank tops. And then Muhammad writes, we all giggled, but I cringed on the inside. I didn't really care that I wore hijab. Modesty was what, was what my faith asked of me, and it was how my mom, sisters, and I had always dressed. So I never secretly longed to run around in a bikini or short shorts. The issue was that it was hard to feel different, especially around my best friends, and harder still when people made a point of it. And it's you know so simply stated, but it's so clear, and it really helps to... I can't tell you how many times I've thought, man, it's really hot. Well, that's really stupid. Um, it is what it is. And hearing her say so is, is I think, a real helpful corrective to all the non-Muslims. And for Muslim readers, it's not like there's a lot of books out there about Muslim African-American girls. Um, so what a bomb it must be to finally be able to see themselves in a book. I can't, she's going to be on the cover. Yeah, she is. And it, it's a great picture, a great picture on the cover. I'm really proud of it. Uh, I shouldn't say that. Um, I'm I'm delighted with it. Um, and it's a great picture on the cover of the book. I mean, she is beautiful and badass and strong, and she's got a sword. I mean, what could be better? <laughs> yeah, that may be our first um, cover where a writer has a sword. <laughs> Here we go. Another first. Another first. Turning now to YA, what have you got for us, Laura? Well, this week I have I Am Still Alive by Kate Alice Marshall, and she's a local to me, Seattle area author. Ooh. And yeah, yay. But before I describe the book, I'm just going to read a little bit from the first page because I feel like it kind of grabs you by the throat and makes you want to keep reading. There are two beginnings to this story. One of them is on a tarmac in Alaska, the other standing on a lakeshore with the rain falling on me like mist, the cabin's timbers smoldering sullen and red. I'll tell you both stories, what happened before my father died and what happened after. And when yeah. I'm done or when I'm too weak to write anymore, I'll leave this notebook where the cabin was. If someone comes looking for us, for me, maybe they'll find it. So if you're reading this, I'm probably dead. But for a while, I survived. My name is Jess Cooper, and I am still alive. Doesn't that make you want to keep reading? It actually gave me chills. Like, <laughs> very, yeah. very, um, I don't know. Like, so now I live in the Pacific Northwest as well, and um, it's a very eerie place. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> Cabiny, you know, misty, sawtooth exactly. mountain, you know, tops. Exactly. You know. And it's about this girl who um, her, her mother died in this car crash that she was also severely injured in. And so now she goes to live with her father, who she hasn't seen in years. And he's this extreme survivalist type in a cabin, no phone, no running water. And he teaches her these survival skills to some degree, but then before long, he's shot by this man um, that he owes money to. And she is left, you know, the cabin's burnt down. She's in the middle of the wilderness. She has a dog and a backpack and it's how she survives. So it's sort of like if you like Into the Wild, you know, mm -hmm. by John Krakauer, or, you know, if you're younger and you like Hatchet or My Side of the Mountain, it's it's that kind of book. 
beautifully written. And, and they don't have that many survival stories in YA, Laura. So, you know, there's this sort of jump between Hatchet you know, and then the the stuff for older readers. I can think of a few, but not that many in YA that are so survival focused. What I like out of a survival story is feeling like if I just had, you know, a piece of bark and a pair of good shoes, I could survive the winter in, you know, the, the remote woods too. And, and this is what the book seems to give you. I, I just got it yesterday, so I haven't had a chance to read it. But opening up in the middle, and she's talking about how she is weaving her, her cabin with the rope and planks and logs. And, and, you know, I really do get the sense that Marshall understands all of the components to surviving in the wilderness, and she is communicating that to readers. It's so cool. Exactly. Yeah, I love that about it. And I have those similar fantasies in reality. I, you know, I might last 24 hours, but it's nice to read the book and imagine you could do it. Yeah. I'm on uh, Kate Alice Marshall's Twitter right now, and in her bio it says, Genre Magpie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I she writes... It. Yes, yeah, she actually, she writes and designs video games. She also writes science fiction and fantasy and historical romance. And now this, you know, real, well, you know, somewhat realistic fiction. And so, yeah, she does, she does it all. So, Eric, what should we be reading in nonfiction? This week I have a book called Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup. And it's by John Kerry Rue. Uh, and it's a investigation of the multi-billion dollar comp- uh, biotech startup Theranos, which uh, was founded in 2003 by a 19-year-old named Elizabeth Holmes, and she founded it based on um, she claimed that she could she had this revolutionary blood testing system that could detect cholesterol from cholesterol to hepatitis C, even cancer using just one drop of blood, and she raised nearly 10 billion dollars in. Um, uh, private investment. And then this Wall Street reporter, John Carreyrou, who's a two-time uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning Wall Street Journal reporter, he started reporting on it and um, found that she had a lot of fake claims or corrected, or corrected test results or inaccurate um, you know, claims about the, the drug's effect, or the, not the drug, the, the procedure's effectiveness. Um, and it's a really based on hundreds of interviews with people inside and outside the company. And his reporting actually uh, led to the um, Security Exchange Commission investigation. So he chronicles the whole downfall, gives really good profiles of all the major employees and especially of um, the founder, Elizabeth Holmes, who basically comes across as this tyrannical leader who um, you know, tried to found this company based on uh, less than uh, accurate results. And so it's a really good tale of you know, hidden agendas, and there's a lot of really good melodrama, corporate malfeasance. You know, people like Wolf of Wall Street would love this kind of book. And it's actually already um, slated to be made into a film, which should be quite interesting. So, Eric, I'm so excited to get this. I'm still number 55 on hold at the library for this book. Um, but it, yeah, I know I'm really impatient to get it. But I was reading about it. It seems like it's also a story in a broader level about scientific illiteracy, you know, among maybe some of the other journalists who are covering it, maybe some of the investors and just this need for better science education. I don't know. What do you think? Certainly. And it's also, you know, similarly, it's, it's you know, science illiteracy by people who are kind of looking for the next big thing and investors who have 
you know, millions, millions and billions of dollars to invest and not necessarily doing their homework on the science side. Um, they're kind of, you know, dazzled by the smoke and mirrors and the possibility of this revolutionary procedure that they don't necessarily see that, you know, the creator and the company are faking results and, and, and not really doing the, the real science required for the procedures. Yeah, apparently the one investor's son was trying to warn him or his grandson that this just, yeah. it wasn't possible. And yeah. Right. It's, it's the seems too good to be true kind of thing where uh-huh. it actually was. On a personal note, Laura, I always like hearing what number on hold you are at the library. <laughs> First of all, Seattle seems to be a really literary city because you sometimes give numbers that are truly shocking to me. But secondly, yeah. I think that it's pro- probably time to devise some bingo cards for the rest of us <laughs> and we'll like stamp them out. And of course the price will be a book. What do you think? I like that. Well, what happens is I put a bunch of things on hold and then they all come in at once yeah. and I can't get through the videos yes, anyway. <laughs> well, enough fun. Let's talk fiction. Lori, what's your choice this week? I'm not sure I like that intro. Oh, okay. <laughs> Scratch that intro. Cut that intro. <laughs> Um, More fun. Let's talk fiction. Yeah, because the book I have is so much fun. It's uh, The Perfect Couple by Ellen Hildebrand. I think I have recommended her before because she is, you know, the kind of perfect, reliable summer reading. The way our reviewer described it, this book, I think, really is great. She says, uh, terrific clothes and food, smart humor, fun plot, Nantucket atmosphere, connections to the characters of preceding novels, and warmth in relationships evoked so beautifully, it gets you right there. It just has, you know, it's silly, it's, you know, fluffy, but they're also really great characters. This book has a mystery. It's It starts at the, the morning of a wedding and on Nantucket, of course, and the uh, maid of honor has been found dead in the ocean. She's drowned, the bride is screaming, you know, the police are called. You follow the police chief as she tries to figure out, you know, what could have gone wrong with this seemingly, you know, wealthy, perfect family, beautiful, lovely bride. The bride is the assistant director of the Bronx Zoo, and she's like the youngest assistant director of a zoological society in the United States. You know, she's got a great career, and, you know, she just comes from a regular middle class family, and her husband, her fiance's family is this very wealthy family. They're English and his mother comes from a family that produced half the gin in Britain and she's also a successful mystery novelist and sort of every other chapter is the police detective trying to you know interviewing people and trying to find out what happened and then going back in time and seeing you know the characters meet you know a couple years ago and move up through time so you get the fun relationship part and you get the mystery part and it all fits together really nicely. Okay. So that is totally fun. I stand corrected and (laughs) I do have a deep and abiding love of Ellen Hildebrand. I think she is just tops and glamorous and I love catching a glimpse of her at fancy parties in New York city when we go in for book expo. I have never done that. Really? Yeah. I'll have to keep my eyes open. Yeah. She has nice style. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to mention similar thing my mother is a huge fan of hers too though she didn't like her last book i don't know why um but you obviously mentioned that she's quite reliable so i think this is something i could recommend to her too and it you say it weaves in characters from the previous however many books as well yeah i think one of the characters says something about how he had the the police chief i think he he's reminded that nantucket is a really small place so i guess just you know 
by virtue of the fact that the characters all bump into each other and stuff. It, she does kind of create a world where they pop up from book to book. Well, thank you all. Um, we hope you join us next week. We're going to be talking to Catherine Coulter. She is the best-selling thriller writer, and her new thriller is titled Paradox. And it is 22nd in her series of FBI thrillers. And, of course, given the news, it's a really fascinating time to be writing about the FBI. So we're going to be talking to her about all that. Until then, you know what to do. Turn this thing off and go read a book. Thanks for listening to Fully Booked by Kirkus Reviews. Check out new episodes every Tuesday at podcastone.com, on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe on iTunes. Hey, it's your girl, Amber Rose. And I'm Dr. Chris. And we're excited to announce the launch of the Amber Rose Show with Dr. Chris right here on Podcast One. We'll be taking your calls, sharing our expert advice, and talking all things sex, relationships, and self-empowerment. This is a judgment-free show, and we want you to be a part of the conversation. So make sure to download new episodes of the Amber Rose Show with Dr. Chris every Thursday on PodcastOne.com, the Podcast One app, and Apple Podcasts. Make sure to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.